Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Thank you all for being here this morning. It's our last session together um, before our July break. Uh, I leave on Sunday for the Holy Land, um, so I will be in Yerushalayim uh, of gold starting Sunday. Uh, so that'll be um, hopefully filled with wonderful learning that I will bring home to you. Of course, you are the first people that I share it with. Um, there is some learning happening through Hartman. You'll be getting your Sunday email. Check your Sunday email. There is some stuff that is being made public um, that's part of the leadership uh, training. They have lay programs as well as clergy programs. Hartman's a big place, so they have a lot going on at the same time. So right now they have a uh, lay uh, cohort meeting, and so uh, they are making some of that public. So we're giving you that link on Sunday um, so that you can look at choices and see if there's some stuff you want to study over July since we won't be uh, learning together. Um, usually I would give you Rabbi Daniel Share as your teacher, but he has a third child, uh, so he's on paternity leave. I said, you know what causes that, right? Right. Do we need to have a conversation? But he swears he does, um, and so they are um, hopefully um, adjusting to baby number three. Uh, in their house. So um, so that's why we're just going to take a hiatus for July, and um, I will see you on the other side of that. All right. So um, for our last class together, I'm very happy to say we have a story um, for our last time together. Um, we're not going to actually read um, exactly on the triennial because the triennial it starts a little bit after or just after the story, and it's just kind of the tail end of the Parsha. Um, but I really want to talk about the story because, if you'll remember, we were doing Ilana Pardes. Do you remember? We were doing a biography of ancient Israel. We were doing work with the character of ancient Israel, and she was doing work um, on ancient Israel as a character and looking at that character's biography but also really taking it seriously from a literature standpoint. So not as a person, but as a person, as a character represented in literature through a literary lens, looking at the character of ancient Israel. If you'll recall, we looked at birth, we looked at toddlerhood, we looked at um, ambivalence about the breast and the person attached to the breast, mom, um, and the complicated nature of that relationship. And that, so remember that was about feeding them in the desert and their, their mixed kind of rage and satisfaction and desire, all of it rolled into one as it tends to be. Um, so we are now working with that character because she returns. Um, I haven't talked to you about Ilana Pardes because she doesn't touch anything in Leviticus because, you know, the character doesn't develop in Leviticus, right? We have all the rules about, you know, behavior, but that's not really about the character's growth. So the character continues its journey um, literally and metaphorically in this week's Parsha in the book of Numbers. And let's remember what Shlach Lecha, what the main storyline is in most of the two-thirds of the Parsha. Um, this is the Parsha about the scouts that are sent to the land of Israel, right? All right, so we just put your memory cap on and remember the scouts and that whole thing. We're going to go over it, but just remember that's what we're dealing with. So now we're dealing with the character and any character in any significant um, literature from the ancient world that is in the hero narrative genre. There are just some rules that come along with a hero story. The infant has to be endangered, Right. You know, the, the, remember your remember your Greek, you know, Iliad, Odyssey, right? All that good stuff. Right. So infant is in danger. Our hero is going to be in danger. Moshe was supposed to be put in the Nile and drown. Right. So we, we, we have much of the hero narrative going on in the Moshe story and that arc, but also in the story of the character of ancient Israel, according to Ilana Pardes. Okay, so the character ancient Israel, 
What do you have to have? You have to have an infant. You have to have, you have to have a lot of stuff. One of the themes in the ancient world of the hero narrative of the hero, like the, the whole point of the story is the hero goes on this journey. The hero has all these tests. The hero overcomes all those challenges and all those things. And then what is the end of the story? The hero comes home. The hero returns home changed and then sometimes you have some complicated circumstances. Think about Agamemnon. He comes home and Clytemnestra, right? The queen kills him, right? So that's complicated, right? You come home and then dead now. Okay. So then you also have Odysseus, right? He comes home and remember what's going on in his house when he gets home, right? First of all, he doesn't know he's home. He doesn't know he's in Ithaca. He, he thinks he's somewhere else. So he doesn't recognize home, but then he figures out he's home. And who's in his house? You remember <clears throat> all the suitors for for his wife, right? They all the suitors that because he's gone and they don't know if he's dead or not. They're all sitting around the house in case word comes that he's dead, and then they're going to compete for her, right? So so that's what he walks into, right? So it's not that the homecoming is just simple and whatever. It can be very complicated, but the hero comes home changed from their journey, sees home in a different way. Um, and then part of our story is, okay, so how does the hero now integrate back into a uh, reality that has shifted because the character itself has shifted? Okay, so that's what we're dealing with. So if you look at where ancient Israel is as a character right now in this story, they are getting their first glimpse of what should be what? Should be the promised land, the promised land, the land of milk and honey, Knaan, home, right? This is where Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, right? That's where their story happens is home. They go down to Egypt and then the character, the whole point of their journey is to return home. That's the point. And of course we know we are left just before that moment in the book of Deuteronomy, right? They're about to cross over. But first we have this interesting scene. The first glimpse by these people of home that they have been away from for, for over 400 years. And the land flowing with milk and honey, right? Should already be telling us something about the character and its relationship to flowing milk, Right. We, we already know about the complicated relationship, right? That, that any character has with flowing milk and the person attached to the flowing milk, the parent attached to the flowing milk. Okay. So I've set you up now. It's a very long narrative. I mean, it's a longer narrative. So I want us to just tell the story. Let's remember. They say when you try to remember things, you actually learn it better. If you have to recall it, that gets harder and more challenging every single year. Um, but all right, so let's remember what happens. So, shlach lecha, send for yourself scouts. All right, why why do we not use the word spies? You often hear this as the twelve spies. Why don't we say spies? Well, they're really not spies. They're out to ascertain who's there and what the conditions are like. Okay. So they're not spies, right? They're, they're scouts. They are, they're there to ascertain, as David says, what's the matzav? What's the situation? Right? Now, already we have a challenge. We have an issue. We have a problem because who says they're going to take the promised land and it's going to be theirs and everything's going to be fine? Who guarantees that? The big guy, says Harvey Free, right? God tells them, you're going to take the promised land. Here's the plan. It's going to be fine. It's going to belong to you. I promised it to your ancestors. Everything's copacetic. Already then we have an issue with the fact that they send scouts. Why are you sending scouts? God has said it's going to be fine. What do you need to know from sending scouts that you don't know from God saying it's going to be fine? So send for yourself scouts. The rabbis, the commentators already say this is a, this is an indication that God did not ask for this and that God is not pleased that Moshe is already sending 
human scouts when God has promised everything's going to be okay. All right. So they send scouts. 12 scouts go out. They are leaders of the people. That's important. They are leaders. These are not schlubs. These are like folks who are respected and understood by each of their constituent communities to be big shots. So they have influence. They're influencers. So 12 influencers are sent to scout out the land. Moshe has some specific questions. Who's there? What's the land like? Um, some commentators want to say, had Moshe not been quite so binary, we might not have been in the trouble that we got in with the whole situation, right? Just, is it this or is it that? Is it this or is it that? Rather than letting the scouts just come back and tell Moshe and the people what what they saw, Moshe is very clear about, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? Okay? So um, we can have lots of opinions about that at some point. So Moshe sends the scouts, uh, Yoshua, Ben-Nun, and Kalev. So Joshua and Caleb are the only two that come back with a positive report, right? Yes, we can do this. We can totes do this, people. Um, the other 10 come back, ah, right? Their cities are huge. Their walls are even bigger. The people are Anakim. They're giants. They're children of the giants. And we all know about Anakim. No, right? We looked like grasshoppers to them. We looked like grasshoppers next to them. And so we must have appeared in their sight, right? They get all flipped out. Now they get all the people upset. The people start freaking out. They start freaking out about, oh, maybe we should go back to Egypt. There's an idea. There's a new idea. Let's go back to Egypt. So the hero descends to Egypt. Remember that the patriarchs all descended, except Isaac. They all descended to Egypt. Abraham, remember Sarah gets taken into Pharaoh's court. Remember those? Um, so they descend into Egypt and they return home. Part of our hero narrative. Here's our people, their first glimpse of the Holy Land. And it is antithetical to your hero narratives. So this is a little bit of what Pardes discusses, Ilana Pardes discusses, is it's the inverse of what you usually have, the longing for home, wanting to be home. The character comes home. They're so relieved to be home. Even though they are different and changed, they're home. The first glimpse of home in our story is they're giants. We can't do this. This is terrible. We're going to die. They're going to take our wives and then they're going to take our children as slaves. We need to go back down to Egypt. God is displeased to say the least. If you'll recall our narrative last week, what happened last week, right? Um, God is not happy with the results. The people are afraid to fight. They don't want to fight. Um, and it's not, it, the whole thing is just not pretty. Okay. So I want to, I want us to look at Ilana Pardes. I don't have the hard copy. I cannot find my hard copy. I don't know what I've done with it. So I apologize for those of you who are here. Those of you who are at home, no problem. Um, those of you here, sorry. So let's look at Ilana Pardes. One thing I want to lift up that Pardes um, talks about uh, is that if you look, she looks, and we're not going to go into it, but she looks at writings of the new world. So when when uh, folks find America and we're looking at the early writings of the explorers, she says it is very similar to what we see in our Torah text, that, that the first glimpses, thank you so much, the first glimpses of... Um, of the new world are that the people are very strange and the, the, you know, it's the first time they're being exposed to all kinds of crops and things that are growing that do not look like where they come from. Um, and so a lot of exaggeration about how different and strange this new world is. And she points out that that's, that's, that is how you know it's not home. It's a strange new land, a strange new environment, a strange new atmosphere, and that it's very similar to how the scouts describe the promised land. Davka, not home. Davka, something completely unusual, completely strange. 
Um, and so I just want us to remember that as well, that, that that's one aspect of this whole business. All right. So, so she lifts up some of the texts that we have here from Numbers 13. We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, they said to Moses, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Okay, yay! It flows with milk and honey. Yay! The place we've been longing for and imagining. The mosaic image of the promised land as a land of milk and honey seems to be confirmed. Yay! But, because we're dealing with a Jewish story, but then a fissure opens up as 10 of the spies swerve from the official line and depict a land that has nothing to do with what's been promised. Canaan is more perplexing than anticipated. It is both good and bad, fat yet inhospitable. Despite the milk and honey, they claim it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. The home of the fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob turned out to be a strange land of menacing giants, a land of others. So defined as, um, as not home as completely other, okay? All right. Uh, ta, 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 ta. All right. The spies story, you can tell where I'm reading. Hopefully you can see the red. Yes. The spies story is a strange tale of no return, no homecoming. The hero's final trial, the final mark of the character's maturation is to return home older and wiser after many years of wars and wanderings, which include at times a voyage to the underworld and establish himself as a glorious leader worthy of assuming the father's position, right? This is the, this is the point of the hero narrative. The hero has to come into the right and everything that has to happen for him to have the right to replace the father. So having survived the encounter with the divine, we're talking now about Jacob in his return back to Canaan, to, right, the Holy Land. He can now venture to enter Canaan and face his brother. This is talking about Jacob and Asav. The desert generation, however, that character, so she talks about all the other patriarchs going down and coming home. We just heard a snippet of, of Jacob's coming home. Now we're going to get the character ancient Israel. The, which is the desert generation, is far more confused and fearful about homecoming than the eponymous patriarch, meaning Israel. The discontinuities or the fissures of identity that characterize the return of the individual hero are far more pronounced in the case of collective identity, a construct whose unity is far more difficult to maintain. Right? That makes sense. You have a lot of people. The group's identity is a lot harder to maintain. Go go talk to me today about what an American is. Talk to me about an American. Right? You'd have a very hard time, right, defining an American right now. Because it's much harder to have a, a collective identity hold just because of the internal right inconsistencies. Okay. And clashes. Okay. The wandering Israelites are skeptical about the very promise that Canaan is their homeland. The only land they wish to return to is what? <laughs> is Egypt. But they end up in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, returning to neither. They remain, in other words, in an in-between zone between infancy and adulthood in a prolonged phase of unsettled and unsettling youth. Jeremiah remembers the period of wanderings in the desert as a golden age in which the nation followed God devotedly with the kindness of youth. Such kindness, however, is shattered by moments in which the Israelites refuse to follow the father and instead seek other roots. The desire to return to Egypt is evident from the outset, but in Numbers 13, the people are ready to act on it. They seek another leader who would reverse the nation's course. Huh. Can you imagine that? Seeking leadership 
that reverses the nation's course. Can you imagine that happening? Thank God we live in modern times and not in these horrible, archaic, right, biblical times. Um, it is a moment of intense controversy that calls into question the official construction of Canaan as national home. All right. We've had it universally talked about as the nation's home. Now, when we have the first glimpse of it, for the first time, we are getting, right, some official questions about whether or not Canaan is, in fact, the national homeland. I suggested earlier, says Pardes, that the concept of a land of milk and honey may be seen as an infantile dream of wish fulfillment, an image of a benevolent motherland whose milk is always available, flowing in abundance, intermingled with honey. The promised land is, in other words, oh, sorry, in other words, is imagined as a perfect mother with the perfect nature who can satisfy all the desires of the young nation, plenitude, pleasure, love, and security. One needs to bear in mind, however, that in a sense, the mother is a beloved as well, something that comes all the more evident the closer the Israelites get to Canaan. So the land of milk and honey that has been an abstract has been this abstract idea of wish fulfillment by, you know, that you promise the infant or that the infant just has, right? So that's what the, the motherland has been represented as in the life of this character. The perfect mother, always available, milk is always flowing, always protective, always loving, always reassuring, always securing, always making baby feel safe, right? This is the dream mother. This mother doesn't exist in reality. We know. So, but this is, this is how the motherland has been, uh, pictured until, <laughs> until they get a glimpse of the actual thing. Cause when you're dealing with the actual thing, you are not dealing with the perfect mother always available to the infant. Who are you dealing with? You're dealing with a mother who is the object of desire of whom? The father. She's she's an object also to, to fulfill someone else's desire who is in direct competition with our character who wants mother to be all things to it. Yeah? Mark Fish, I hope, he, he should be levitating at this point. All right. At first sight, however, Canaan does not seem like home sweet home. It definitely does not radiate the kind of warmth and familiarity one would expect. What the spies, the 10 rebellious ones seem to claim is that the mother slash bride, because remember it's mother to the infant, but bride to the father, who's the competitor to the baby, seems to claim that the, the mother slash bride who was to welcome them home turned out to be a great disappointment. Instead of supplying her sons and lovers with the goods, with the promised milk and honey, she threatens instead what? Y'all psychologists really, you have to love this stuff. She threatens to devour the inhabitants of the land. Vaginitus dentis, the vagina with teeth, right? So the object of desire also threatens to consume and emasculate the the lover, the, des the desirer of that figure. You don't get, come on, people. Eretz ochelet yoshveha, a land that eats her, its settlers. Come on. You, you can't tell me this isn't fabulous stuff, right? It literally eats its inhabitants. It says so in Torah. I'm not making this up. It says it right there. Eretz ochelet yoshveha, eats, devours her Settlers, instead of being a source of nourishment, an object of desire, she becomes a perverse mother with cannibalistic impulses and an appetite of her own. Like, wait, what? She has an appetite? She wants something? What does she want? She wants to consume the infant. So I hope I'm not oversharing <laughs> when I say um, I always thought that I had some kind of abandonment stuff going on. I was adopted. My father left because they divorced, blah, 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 blah. Well, it turns out in a therapy session, I was not so concerned with being left or abandoned. What was my 
what was one of my driving concerns that it turns out in a really deep, amazing session, it, it was, it was my fear of being consumed by my mother, my narcissistic borderline mother. That was the driving anxiety, was a fear of being consumed. That's exactly what we have here. It is precisely what we have here, that as safe as mother is, as wonderful as mother is, mother also might eat me, right? And I will become her, right? I will be consumed and I will become her and I will cease to exist as a separate entity, right? Who is cared for by her, protected by her. Okay, this is just... On the paternal front, the picture is not brighter. In this case, the fathers or their traces are simply absent. Their absence is all the more threatening in light of the fact that the land is packed with other nations. Here we go, a quote quote from Numbers 13. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, say the spies, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. Other people are there. Other fathers are there, not our father, not our ancestors. There is no empty place, no matter which direction one chooses. No glimpse of continuity with the patriarchal tradition was to be seen. The only past the spies evoke is a pre-patriarchal one. They depict the tall inhabitants of Canaan as Nephilim, the legendary gigantic heroes of the antediluvian period, who were considered to be the curious product of the couplings between the sons of God and the daughters of Adam. The history of the patriarchs is provocatively eclipsed as another continuity between the Nephilim and the inhabitants of Canaan is established. For the spies, the promised land is not merely an old world awaiting their return. It resembles a threatening, though marvelous, new world whose relation to Israelite historiography is questionable. Yeah? A challenge, right, to the whole business, um, the whole project. The fear of cannibalism, which we talked about a second ago, hovers over the travel account of the spies as well. The land as a whole is described as a cannibalistic mother who swallows up her children. And even the representation of the giants is colored in similar hues insofar as grasshoppers are known as the smallest edible animal according to biblical law. I did not know that. I did not know that the grasshopper is the smallest edible animal um, permitted by Leviticus. But there you go. So when they say we seemed like grasshoppers in their sight, so we must have seemed to them. She's suggesting they are saying we are the tiniest possible edible thing on the planet. Uh, she's talking here about giants. They're kosher. They're, they're totes kosher. Oh, right. Ugh, that was horrible. Bruno Bettelheim's work on fairy tales may shed further light on the role of the giants. According to Bettelheim, giants usually stand for adults and more often for fathers, which is why children take so much pleasure in seeing the big creatures being fooled by their small heroes. This, of course, is not the case in our tale. What the spies sense on seeing the giants is primarily powerlessness. They seem to shudder at the thought that they will never grow up or reach mature stature or such stature. The tradition Moses had invented for them has a dark side. If they really had such glorious ancestors, how could they follow in their footsteps? Canaan is the land of the grown-ups, which means that there is no room in it for them. But then their reluctance to enter the world of adults is also a challenge to the underlying presuppositions of adulthood. Adulthood entails conquest and a mode of heroism that they find hard to accept. So what's happening according to um, Ilana Pardes in our, in our, uh, in our story? So, so help me unpack, help me unpack what's going on. What's happening in our story? What did I just say that she said? You can unmute people. What's happening with our character? What's happening? There seems to be a difference of opinion between the two and ten. Between the two and ten, there's definitely a difference of opinion. You know, what is the reality? Who's seeing ah. the truth? Or 
are one set of participants ready to see something in a different light and the other 10 are not. And, you know, that's being human. So Dana's lifting up that our story is, in fact, about humans. It's about how humans operate in the world, because why would we have a story that's not about humans? Right. Like so because these are these are stories written by humans for humans. So and I mean that like this is a story about being human. And we often forget that we think it's a story about scouts and the land and blah, blah, blah. It's not. It's the story of being human. Ten folks see it one way. Two folks see it a different way, which is the truth. Right. You and I see it really differently. Who who's the truth? It seems our story suggests both are true. It really depends on how you see it in terms of what you're going to do next. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. Who's more accurate in their assessment and who isn't? That is not the point of the story. The story's not interested in who's right. The story's very clear. They're both right. The story cares about if you represent it and see it one way, you're ready to go fight. They would have gone in. It would have been amazing because they leaned into seeing it a different way, which is also accurate. They don't. And what happens where our triennial picks up is that God says your carcasses will fall in the desert, meaning you will drop dead here. You want to go back to Egypt and you're afraid to go forward? No problem. You will drop dead right here. And that's the result of seeing it a different way. Both are accurate representations. What Torah cares about is when we lean into one perspective versus another perspective, how does it influence how we behave? I, I see it as if there's something of value, then you're going to have to fight for it. And it's no good if someone gives you that Porsche. It has no value. It's it's only when you really have to go and fight for it and make it your own, in this case, getting rid of all those other fathers. Right. Nice. So Harvey's saying Torah is also lifting up the fact that it really isn't ours. I would go so far as to say it isn't ours until we've had to fight for it, until we've had to work for it. And we have to remove all those other fathers in order for us to feel like we are coming into the land um, that we're inheriting from our ancestors, right? They have to be displaced. And that takes courage. That takes bravery. That takes work. And it is very clear that the 10 spies and then the response to the 10 spies is that the people are not ready to fight. They are not ready to work. They're not ready to claim ownership of adulthood. The character is stuck between, right, childhood and the adulthood that looks just too terrifying that they cannot see themselves as adults. They see themselves as grasshoppers. And that that fundamental inability to see themselves as adults is why they can't go in. And it's why this generation will drop dead in the desert and it will be the next generation that goes in. The next iteration of this character, ancient Israel, is the one that will be able to envision itself as an adult and will be able to do what becomes necessary to step into adulthood with all of its concomitant um, terrors. I don't know about y'all. I'm still terrified of adulting. Like, it scares me every single day, adulting. Because it's super hard, especially now. I'm sorry, uh, Volvo uh, needs my car because it has to go in for it. And then I have to have insurance on the car. And then you have to have the tag number. And then you have to have the VIN number. And then it's like adulting is really, that's just one aspect. Adulthood is really hard. But now add the really important stuff, <laughs> right, about adulthood and the, the no, I don't want to say risks, but the risks. I mean, the the cost of failure is pretty high. All right. More. Tell me more. What else is she lifting up here? Uh, Judith has her hand up. Judith, you bet. Yes. This is seeing Israel as a character, of course. <clears throat> and, a, and a character is a child afraid of growing up. I'm thinking of that famous old TV show where the teacher called his, his student grasshopper. 
which was very, I, I'm old enough to remember that story. Maybe nobody else does on TV. Oh, yeah, we remember. Yeah. <clears throat> and also, I think that um, for for a child to grow into adulthood, he has to be willing not to accept milk and honey as the goal. The goal is a much tougher battle, as somebody just mentioned. You have to fight for it. And I also heard one time something that I believe all the time that will help you and me, Amy. It's never too late to have a happy childhood. Yes, <laughs> we can, yes, not really. We yes, can still celebrate the childishness that lingers in all of us. And it's a healthy thing that that joy of childhood can pop up from time to time. It, yes, it's really tough to be an adult and accept the losses and the defeats and the challenges. But getting into adulthood offers rewards that have to be fought for and accepted at the same time. It's a tough time, but it's a good time. So so this clearly is represented in our story that this character is deeply ambivalent, right? Yeah. About about taking on what is necessary to take on in order to reap <clears throat> the rewards of adulthood. Yes. I, I kind of go back to what you were saying. I okay. think if you reach the point where you're afraid to move forward and you're not able to go back, because the calendar doesn't work that way. You're dead. So death, that they dropped dead, they died. So Mark is saying, Torah is lifting up for us that if you can't move forward, and we know you can't go back because time doesn't work that way. We know we can't go back, and but you're not going to move forward. Mark is saying, Torah is making it very clear, you die. If you can't move forward, and we know you can't go back, what happens? You're dead. You stop mattering. Your life stops. And that doesn't mean literally dead. I mean, it does in our story, but right. What it means is you, you die as an, as a person with agency, right? The only way to move is forward or else you're, you're staying in place. And if you're staying in place and not stepping into adulthood, not coming into what that, the challenges of that and what that's going to mean, you stop developing. And that's, that's the metaphor, right? Of they dropped a, they, they're not developing. They're stunted. And they're stuck. And that's our metaphor of just dead. And I, I also think of Lot's wife, right? She turns into a pillar of salt. That's my other go-to story for this, this image. If she can't move forward, she keeps looking back. And it's that that leaves her ossified. You, if, you, if you can't go forward and you're constantly looking back to where you can't go, Right, it's destroyed. You can't go there. It's it doesn't exist anymore. Um, you essentially become a pillar of salt. You can't you can't move. There's there's nothing. You're frozen. Um, and to Mark's point, you are you're dead. Anything else you want to say, people? You gotta love this. You have to love this. Um, I believe Torah is lifting up for us in this story, which I've I have to be honest, I've never I've never considered the story this way. Um, you know, as the character of ancient Israel being the hero who's not ready. I mean, we all have talked about it lots of times about they're not ready. They're not ready. It's clear it's going to be the next generation, not this generation. But to really look at the people as standing on the precipice, having been longing for the perfect mother flowing with milk and honey, who's going to keep them safe and give them a place and they're not going to be wandering and they're not going to be oppressed in Egypt. They're going to have their own place, the place of their ancestors, the place that is home. Um, and then to have their first glimpse of it and go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not, this is not what, what we were told. This is not what we imagined, right? Standing on the precipice of actually having to step into what it will mean to claim their adulthood they freak out, right? It's too much. It's too daunting. It's too terrifying. It's too overwhelming. Um, and they're not able to do it, right? And, and here's where I feel like the, 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 I, I totally understand that. And I think even Torah understands that. The character that doesn't understand it is whom? Moses. Moses gets it because Moses defends them. Who doesn't get it? The father. Daddy doesn't get it. Daddy loses his cool and threatens to kill the kid. And Moshe, mom, right, is the one who calms daddy down enough 
to say, don't kill them. Right. And, um, and God says, okay, fine. Not going to kill him today, but he's dead to me. Literally dead to me. Your carcasses will fall in this desert. God says you're dead to me. And that's what Amy, Amy. Yeah. Nobody has mentioned them. I'm shocked. Nobody has mentioned the magic word adolescent. Um, Uh uh, In between the child and the adult is an individual, some say a subhuman individual, who um, uh, wants to get into adulthood but sees the first glimpse of it and is shocked and draws back and is ambivalent and ambivalent. Um, this is where, uh, the, uh, the nation, the ancient Israel nation is sort of mired in right now as adolescents where the father wants to kill him. And I mean, just so many, um, uh, I, I defer to Rick and to others about the psychology of this, but, uh, nobody's really yet mentioned how uh, this really ties up with um, the concept of adolescence. Well, there's a reason for that, I think. Um, Adolescence is a new concept. In the ancient world, there was no adolescence. You were a child and then you were an adult, hence the bar mitzvah experience, right? You put them through a trial. Put them through a horrible, horrible ordeal, and on the other side of that, they're adults. There was childhood, there was adulthood. The precipice is between them. And, and one has to go from childhood into adulthood. One was often circumcised, scarred. You bled. It was terrifying. You were put through a majorly painful ordeal. We've talked about this before. And then you became an adult, whether you liked it or not, whether you were ready or not. You went through the ordeal and you became an adult. The terror of standing right, looking over into adulthood. I I think is what Torah is dealing with. We understand another stage of development called adolescence. Um, And now we have extended adolescence. You know, I tell my B'nai Mitzvah kids, look, you're not going to be living on your own for 10 more years. Another decade. Why the heck are we having a party right now? Right? Because you're a Jew, because you're going to live your life as a Jew, you're going to have to go to some kind of education after high school. Right? 99% of Jews do that. Why? Because the parents kill the rest, right? You're dead if you don't go. So you will have to go. You're going to, that's another, that means 10 more years for you of something, whether you're going to be a pastry chef or a mechanic or whatever, you have to go learn because your parents are going to make you. So, um, so it's, so it's, it's this huge extended period, but, but that's not true of the ancient world and certainly of these hero narratives. There was no such thing. You might have had the ambivalence of not stepping fully into adulthood, for sure, for sure. That's what we see here. Um, and now we, we, we have a whole period of in-betweenness um, that's filled with anxiety and parents wanting to sometimes kill their children. But um, I'm just saying that's what I've heard um, about adolescence. Um, but right, the pushing up against the authority, the push, you know, the challenge of that, the back and forth of that is a much longer and well-understood process now. Dana Fine. I just had a quick question of clarification, which I have to think about real quick. Um, did, did God, at the beginning, did God tell these scouts or spies to go, or was it all under Moses' direction? So um, so we are, we get shlach lecha, send for yourselves. Here's the beginning of our parsha. I'll read it to you. God speaks to Moshe saying, Shlach lecha anashim, send for yourself people to scout the land which I'm giving to the Israelite people. Send one participant from each of their ancestral tribes, each one a chieftain among them. So that's how our parsha opens. The, the rabbis want to say, God says, shlach lecha, send for yourselves because God doesn't want this. God understands that the people, that Moses and the people want this. But it doesn't say that in the text. It just says, God says, send scouts. And then God is presumably disappointed with what the scouts come back and report. And then what the people do with that report. 
right? Do the people go, wait, 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 y'all. Calm down. God has said it's going to be fine. Is that what they say to the scouts? No, right? So, so God is disappointed both in the scouts, but also in the people who start freaking out um, with the scouts report. Amy? Yes? Just a point of clarification. Where, when in our history did bar mitzvah begin? In ancient oh, yeah. times or in medieval? Or It's based on the change of status <clears throat> since ancient times. Okay. The minute you became 13 and survived your 13th birthday, you were no longer a minor. So you were no longer exempt. In Jewish law, you are exempt as a child from being held responsible for violating either a positive or a negative commandment. The, the, my, the check minus in the big black book goes in your parents' book. They are responsible for your behavior until the age of majority. Once you are no longer a minor, once you survive your 13th birthday, you are now responsible for all of the mitzvot. That's why you are called a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandments. But a daughter of the commandments and the ceremony was from ancient times as well. No, there was no ceremony. You, you just became an adult. Okay. What, what the, what we have is, is the proof that a boy is now part of the majority and now can be called for a minion, now can be counted in a minion. The proof is that he's called to Torah the the first time you read Torah after his 13th birthday. Ah. So Monday, Thursday, and Saturday, Torah was read in the shul. So uh, my 13th birthday is March 21st. The first day after that, the Torah is read. I, as a boy, would be called to Torah. That proves to the community that my status has changed. So that I can now be counted in a minion. I can now be called for Kaddish. Right? Okay. That So now... We have a whole big hoopla to call them to Torah for the first time, and we celebrate it with a big party at an expensive hotel. Okay? Judith so, has had her hand up, but you can't see it because it's obscured by her yellow wall. I'm sorry? Judith Ubik also has her hand up, but you can't see it because uh, it's on a yellow wall. You don't have your hand up, Judith, or you do? She does not. Okay. Oh, okay. So Jody, your hand is something raised on her yellow wall. On yeah, you need to like, yeah, <laughs> check that out. Um, all right. So, um, so this idea of shifting from minor to adult remains, people, for us. It remains. The Jewish people. I've told you this before. I'll tell you again. Confirmation was the reform attempt to get rid of bar and bat mitzvah. Confirmation was to move the celebration of becoming an adult to 16, where it made more sense than 13. Kids at 13 are doing it because their parents make them, right? I told my daughter, this is not up for discussion. You will be having a bat mitzvah, right? You want to look like an idiot because she wouldn't work on her talk. You want to look like an idiot about your Torah portion? That's on you. I don't care. Your thank yous don't rock to all the people who helped get you here. Don't come home. Do not come home. So this big ceremony that we do at 13 really was attempted to be moved because of adolescence, because we understand, you know, a lot more, blah, 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 blah. The Jewish people wouldn't go for it. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? The Jews wouldn't go for it. They kept bar and bat mitzvah and added confirmation. Confirmation never replaced the ceremony at 13. It's only gotten bigger and, if you ask me, more popular in some ways. One of the only rites of passage that Jews do anymore. Why? Why? I think, and I tell this to families, I think it remains so powerful for people because half of that equation is still true. They're not starting adulthood. They're starting the path to young adulthood. But what if that equation remains true? childhood is over childhood is over when you start menstruating you are very clear that life has changed as your body develops right all kinds of things start shifting and happening it's it it is a 
trauma on one level and something to celebrate on another level, right? Um, and I think that is still a very powerful moment when childhood is over and your body, mind, and spirit start to confront the reality of becoming an adult, whether you like it or not, right? There's, as we know, lots written on, you know, your body changing and you have no control over it. And how terrifying that is, that your body's becoming an adult body and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so um, so I think that that is still a super powerful moment. I think Pardes in this sto- uses this story and, and represents the story in a really interesting way about the absolute abject terror of that process of of leaving childhood and and starting you know whatever uh whatever the journey is next we see it here it gives me a little more rachmanis because i can get a little impatient with the people in this book um meaning myself right so um but it gives me a little more rachmanis for them to to read it this way that it is it is terrifying right any kind of growth any kind of stepping into a new phase of of becoming of development should be terrifying because it because there's a lot going on for us. There's a lot that we give up. There's a lot that we have to let go of. And there's a lot that we risk moving into a, a new place, uh, a new status, a new level, whatever we want to talk about um, with this. And of course, as you know, Judah said, you know, and it comes with its own comes with its own gifts. It comes with its own um, opportunities. It comes with its own freedom um, and the things we earn when we face it. And, and, and go there and, and take it on. So, um, for me, a really wonderful, uh, teaching from Ilana Pardes about our Parsha, a new way to understand it at, at a greater depth as I get ready to step into the Holy Land and step into a, a new, a new level of, hopefully, of learning and growth myself. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.